0: Welcome to the Woke Talk podcast. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer in training with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. Today's topic focuses on plastics. For a lot of people out there, the material of plastics is an unconscious substance that we use in nearly every application during the day. For this episode, my guest stars and I intend to open your eyes to the world of plastics. We all know how convenient they can be. But what you will find out through the course of this podcast is what plastics truly are, the global trends of plastics from their invention to today, the effects that plastics have on our ecosystems, and then finally, we will plan to round out the episode with some special advice on how to mitigate our plastic consumption without hurting our banks. And now I would like to introduce my cast, starting with first, Greg Daly. Greg stumbled into the beauty industry by accidentally building one of the largest hair related accounts on Instagram. Since that time, he has owned and sold a product company featured on Shark Tank. He has co founded an ocean cleanup organization and recently started a hair care company called Seabar that makes disposable plastic free hair care and picks up ocean trash with every item sold. Today, his focus is on reducing the impact of the beauty industry on the environment, which is very noble. And you can find Seabar, his company, on Instagram at Seabar Cleans. And you can also find his ocean cleanup organization at Pavati Ocean Pickup on Instagram as well. My second guest is Jeremy Conkle. Jeremy is an associate professor in the Department of Physical and Environmental Science at Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi he earned his dual bachelor's degrees in biology and chemistry at longwood university he also achieved an ms in environmental studies from the college of charleston and a phd in oceanography and coastal sciences from louisiana state university he was also a postdoctoral scholar at university of california riverside his research focuses on contaminant presence along with fate and impacts in aquatic systems Dr. Konkul's current research relates to plastic debris in rivers and coastal settings. This includes work quantifying microplastics in the Mississippi River and their discharge to the Gulf of Mexico. He also studies microplastics in Texas rivers and bays, along with the microplastic consumption by blue crabs. And last but not least, Meza Albari. Meza is majoring in electrical engineering with a focus on power systems at Western Sydney University in Australia. Her intent is to focus on green and sustainable energy sources to combat climate change. Meza is an active climate change advocate on social media and is posting daily interactive and enlightening information to the public at large. Her plan is to influence people into becoming more sustainable and practicing their environmental consciousness. You can find Meza on Instagram, at CZG underscore electrical underscore engineer. So I hope that got you excited because when we come back from our first commercial break, we plan to introduce plastics and talk about how they became a mainstream trend from invention to now. So stay tuned. We are rolling here at Woke Talk Podcast, and for the first segment, we thought it would be important to kick off the episode by laying the foundational information of plastics. So, what is plastic? Plastic is a substance that is made of polymer chains, which are just large molecules of the same repeated substance. So, plastics are usually referred to by man-made materials, while other substances, such as wool, protein, and silk all actually fall into that same category and considered as plastics. So plastics on a material standpoint are absolutely superb. Plastics when made are highly workable and moldable due to its low mending temperatures and it makes it easy to form whatever product is manufactured. Now they are also highly resilient and do not break down as easily as most other products. Most other products such as aluminum, Paper and tin biodegrade through natural processes, but plastics that are synthetic continuously break down into smaller and smaller components, which are noted in mainstream information as microplastics. So plastic products weren't always made from synthetic components. Before 1907, plastics were only made from natural components like the silk and celluloid that was mentioned before. So that all changed with the invention of bakelite. Bakelite was made from phenol, a product of coal tar and a concentration of formaldehyde, the same substance that we flood humans with upon a funeral viewing. But this was the spark that ignited scientists of the early 20th century to invent synthetic plastic. After synthetic plastics, polyesterine was invented in 1920 for the use of insulation. And then came vinyl that was created and used in many applications, but most well known for scratch records that conveyed music and messages. To round out the 20s, acrylics were also developed then to mimic glass. Once the 30s kind of rolled around, we saw nylon, a plastic that revolutionized the clothing industry, and finally polyethylene. Polyethylene is still highly utilized today in most things that you can think of. Plastic bags, shampoo bottles, deodorant containers, and much more. Just like most consumer products, military usage propelled its availability. I don't care what you proclaim, uh, whether it's radios or piezoelectric materials, plastics, everything is propelled by the government and by military usage. So scientists developed plastics to provide more affordable products to the public at large. And with the help of World War II, plastic production boomed and became the norm. There were plastic grocery bags, plastic wrap, plastic gloves, improved and sterile medical technology, containers that made food and other goods last longer, and just much more, like anything you could think of. It ultimately made life more convenient. And that's the truth synthetic plastics can be broken down into two forms. There's single-use plastics, and then there's multi-use plastics. Today though, single-use plastics account for 90% of the plastics produced worldwide, which is insane. Yes, they are convenient and cost-effective, but with all decisions come consequences. So plastics are made of non-renewable resources that are deemed synthetic, increased production, comes at the cost of using these non-renewable resources and a surmounting carbon footprint. These synthetics are made from natural gas and oil. As mentioned before, plastics are in almost all daily products from toiletries all the way to food storage. This results in a mass production and over usage. So to come full circle, we face a huge plastic problem. Because these plastics are so resilient, And there was so much produced for single use. There are now insane amounts floating around, so to speak. So I grabbed an article published by the BBC that reported a study done by a group of U.S. scientists that showed we have produced nearly 8.3 billion metric tons of plastic worldwide since 1950, which could cover the entire country of Argentina in You know, the country of Argentina is pretty massive. It's the eighth largest country in the world. Yikes. Scientists deemed that we are now living in the plastics century. Now, I could charm you with more facts about how much we humans have polluted earth with plastics, but I thought we could switch gears and give you a different perspective. So I have a treat for you. And originally I was going to talk for this whole segment, but then I ran across Greg Daly. And Greg is the founder of Pavati Ocean Pickup. And I don't want to throw out any spoilers about his organization, but I can tell you he is the perfect person to come on and talk about what is going on today in our environment in relation to plastic. So thanks for being on the show, Greg. Would you mind
1: telling us about Pavati Ocean Pickup? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited for this. Um, So Pavati Ocean Pickup really started as a pandemic project is what I call it. So when everything started to go into lockdown in 2020, some friends and I uh, were like, let's pick up a thousand pounds of ocean trash. So we started doing that. And my sister posted something about it on Instagram or on Facebook rather. And she used to live in the Philippines and has a whole bunch of friends in the Philippines. And, uh, as we were picking up trash, we we're going out almost every day, picking up trash and getting kind of obsessed about it. And then it's so random. It could only happen on Facebook. My sister's friends, sister's husband reaches out to my sister first, actually. I was like, Oh, I would like to help with this somehow. And, uh, we're like, cool. And so we pulled together some money and we paid him to hire a crew in the Philippines and pick up trash. And the beach behind me, there is what they picked up. It's this little strip of land, I don't know, maybe a hundred yards long by 50 yards wide, like a little triangle. And over the course of a week, they pulled out a little over 30,000 pounds of trash. It's pretty crazy. They could probably have pulled out another, like maybe 500 to a thousand pounds out of it after they were done. Wow. But it was just kind of in the mud and in the muck and I don't know. Jeez, No, just decades of uh, having trash being compacted down. That's that's crazy. Totally. And all the locals were like, this is the cleanest we've ever seen this. And so that's kind of how it started. So now we pick up trash in Washington state where I'm based. And then uh, the lady who I started with Annie, she's based in Maine and she picks up over there. She's a lot more regular. When I go out, I usually go out and pick up like a few hundred pounds. I go big. She goes out every day. She's really dedicated Um, you can see her stuff on our Instagram page, Pavati ocean pickup, but yeah. And so kind of to speak about the stuff that we find is we find a lot of really consumer products is what we find a lot of. Now we find a lot of fishing gear too. And if you've seen that show, Sea spiracy, um, they talk a lot about the trash that we find, like the, the fishing trash that we find. Yeah. And we find like she's based in Portland, Maine, which is obviously a lobstering community on Bellingham, Washington, salmon and crab. So they are fishing their active dock areas. Like these aren't like tourist beaches type areas as much. They are active waterfronts, I guess. Yeah. And so we find quite a bit of fishing gear and by weight, it's probably equals the amount of because they're like big things like we'll get a whole net or oh, like I a, it. a full crab pot that's washed up again or so we find quite a bit of that and so but the consumer stuff I think is underrepresented because if you think about most of the fishing gear like most of it's designed to float and I don't remember the exact number but something like 70 percent of all the trash that goes in the ocean just sinks straight to the bottom and never comes out again and so we we don't find the stuff that doesn't flow. Like that doesn't come back out. Uh, But what we do find, we find a lot of bottles and cans, like like you would imagine. But the things that really surprised me, the things that I guess I didn't expect to find, like I expected to find the disposable items that you throw away after one use because everybody sees those on the ground. Yeah, single use. The stuff that I didn't expect to find were like the durable goods, I guess, that you expect people to throw away properly. Like you wouldn't believe the number of shoes that I find. We find so many shoes and flip-flops. Like I started collecting them and I've got like a couple of five gallon buckets full of shoes that I collected just over a couple of times in this one little strip of land. And the other one is tennis balls, presumably from people playing fetch with their dogs. But these kind of durable products, I guess, got me thinking about the whole supply chain and like the whole factor of recyclability And we've been told for years about, you know, we got to recycle, recycle, recycle. And like modern recycling started in the 60s and 70s when garbage started piling up. And the birth of the modern recycling movement can really be traced back to this ad that they ran, really successful ad called the Crying Indian ad. And you can look it up on YouTube. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, You know, we'll put aside for a second that the actor is actually Italian, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he's crying about all of this garbage and the end line is something along the lines of like humans made pollution, humans can clean it up. But all of that good message is like, it's true. But the underside of it is the ad was paid for by the keep America beautiful foundation, which was founded by a large coalition of bottlers. Ah. So (laughs) these bottling companies didn't want to be blamed essentially for the garbage that was piling up like before you know your milk bottles and your soda bottles you returned them for a deposit right and they washed it and used it again right mm-hmm. and that cost a lot of money once plastic came on the scene you know your milk and your your soda and whatever could just be put in these bottles that cost them a couple of cents and then it mm-hmm. could be disposed of and you know who cares they were so cheap oh yeah and so there's been this concerted effort to pin recycling as the solution to our problems because recycling falls on the consumer end and it conveniently and very deliberately shifts that burden from the producers to the consumers.
0: I totally agree with that. I mean, only 9% of what we do globally is recycled out of the 9 billion metric tons of produced plastic that we've made since 1950. It's an insanely small amount. And also if you recycle things, you only get certain amount of uses until it's disposed of anyways. So it doesn't really answer the problem at all. Totally. On a very minuscule scale.
1: And the reason that recycling doesn't work, like recycling does work Mm. for products that are worth recycling. Yeah, like glass. Well, glass is great to recycle, but the colors start, throwing in a mm-hmm. bunch of problems like glass is infinitely recyclable but it's really difficult to recycle True, just plastic recycling is abysmally low it's like nine percent like you were saying versus paper which is up in the 60 percent. that's because recycled paper is actually valuable recycled plastic is not valuable it's cheaper to make new plastic than it is to recycle plastics so again significantly cheaper yeah and if it wasn't if it was valuable, then the recycling rates would be up like it is with paper. It's just, it's economics.
0: Oh, yeah. With these food grade safe plastics, the reason why it's food safe is because it's made of multi layer plastics. So it's really, really difficult to separate. That's why it's so expensive.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you saw the hullabaloo about the Tetra cycle. If you buy like the ultra pasteurized milk or almond milk or something in those Tetra packs, on the back, they have these like, recyclable stuff. Yeah. But you have to send it away. There's this whole thing. There's a bunch of articles about it. You can link to it in the show notes or something, but about how this is basically just a scam. Like they're not really recyclable. They recycle a very small percentage of them and then they stop accepting it. They're like the company who makes this pays us a certain amount to recycle, you know, x number of these tubes and bottles mm-hmm. and then we don't recycle anymore cuz it's insanely expensive. We can't recycle our way out of it. The only way we can solve this problem of plastic and garbage piling up in the ocean is to not use it in the first place is to look for products and options that don't use disposable plastic. Like plastic is a miracle substance. It really is. It's amazing. Yeah. But we should be saving it and treating it as the valuable product. It is right now. The costs of disposal of plastic are externalized. They're put into oh, the yeah. environment. If we were paying the true cost mm-hmm. of plastic, it would cost I'm making this number up, but m- several times what they cost now. Oh, yeah. 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 There needs
0: to be some sort of producer pushback. I mean, they have to be uh, responsible for what they put out there. I've seen recollection programs where it's kind of government implemented, where these producers are responsible. They have to, they produce the product. So, say, like uh, Coca Cola, they sell you a, a liter of Coke. Well, then they're responsible then to collect that from the consumer and then reintroduce that into their manufacturing process. And then it's just reusing rather than recycling or throw away society,
1: which there's already a system for that. They did it for hundreds of, well, I don't know, hundreds, but a hundred years, they did that exact same thing. It's not like it's not possible. It just costs more money than they're willing to pay and it increases the price of their product. Yep. Which decreases demand, and they don't want to do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, the last time we had a system in which the government was like, listen, we need you to recycle everything, just everything that you kind of consume, that was World War II. And right after World War II, we got into the plastics era, which created the plastic century that we're in now. It's crazy. And, you know, if I may, it is an endless cycle of government implementation, you know, without a stern approach to sanctioning these producers who supply single use plastics to the public. It's hard to write the ship. If you don't correct bad behavior, it becomes an unconscious act, right? Absolutely. Governments, they mandate education reform, right? And then educational systems then inform students. Well, what are the students? The students become the producers and the lawmakers. And lawmakers run the government and producers continue to supply the same goods and continue the downward trend. So without education, teaching us environmental ethics that is mandated by the government, it's hard to create any sense of change.
1: Absolutely. And not greenwashing it through like right now, they only teach recycling. They have to teach more. Oh yeah, totally.
0: Let's be honest. Recycling is literally bottom tier. It's a reduce and reuse. Just making conscious decisions. And they don't teach to make conscious decisions about it. That's why it's unconscious. We don't even think about it, but I get it. Companies make decisions based on money and education. So if it doesn't hurt their pockets, uh, it's okay. And if they are informed on the impacts of their products and what they can do to minimize that impact, then there would be a really good cause for change. I totally understand. But And we also have to think about it this way because we talked about government and the producers. So it's not really a linear problem. Everything's always dynamic. Yeah. You know, it's going to take all sectors of life. For one, the consumers. We do have to make conscious purchases after we get informed. And we have to also vote appropriately. We have to have people in not even just the president, the whole way from top to bottom that are conscientious about a green movement. Yep. And then, you know, we also just have to lobby for change. If we sit here at our computers, we're we're not really doing anything. Uh, We have to get out and we have to invoke change. Secondly, government officials, they have to mandate these laws to make producers change their business models and correct educational systems to teach environmental ethics. And then finally, which you're preaching and and I'm 100% about it is producers. I mean, they have to follow through. They have to follow through in an economical and sustainable manner. This approach, I can see humans actually riding the ship it has to be everybody coming together you know we create the problem and subsequently we will have to conjure up a solution and yes still continue to recycle i i, I feel like we badmouth recycling we still have to recycle
1: yeah yeah agreed agreed totally there's nothing it's not bad but it's bottom tier like you just said it's the last resort Oh, yeah. And I'm a big
0: fan of AI. A lot of people are against AI. A lot of people are scared of AI. I I hope AI can also help us. Because instead of humans sitting there sorting through mindless amounts of trash on conveyor belts, they can easily sift through colors. So like how you say glass, glass is an issue because of colors. Well, what if we have a system in which, oh, that's green glass, push, that's red, push, it's brown, push, it's clear, push it to the side, and it goes to an appropriate space. Someday, If we keep recycling and if we keep reducing and keep reusing, things will get better. We just have to tackle the problem with a little bit of technology and a little bit of education.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And committing to it financially because all of these things cost money. Mm -hmm. and We have to decide that we're not going to externalize those costs onto the ocean and the environment anymore.
0: Oh, yeah. Like you said, if we actually appropriated the correct costs on plastics, we'd be changing business models every day. You know, if it was appropriately cost, just like water. It would be a huge change. But the great news is that there are states and countries at large who are banning single-use plastics. Have you heard about like all the stuff that Canada's been doing lately, especially this
1: year? Yeah, they've they've been taking some some big steps. I I'm interested to see how it actually pans out. Like yeah. the definition of single-use plastic by some people is very literal. I think it's mm-hmm. like that might not include a milk jug because you use it five times, you know, (laughs) like I, I, I'm afraid that it's going to get greenwashed in that sense. Mm -hmm. I hope that they stick to their guns. And if something's not, doesn't need to be plastic. If there's not like a massive incentive for it to be like syringes or something that needs to be perfectly sterile blood bags or something Mm -hmm. like that. Like I'm fine with plastic there or plastic that gets used for a decade in a car. Oh, yeah. I can see that being beneficial because then it's a big enough sheet and it's a single size and it's easy to recycle and all that stuff. It's the I think you you used it best, like the mindless consumption of it. We've been trained not to even think about it. My grandma used to wash out Ziploc bags. I do. (laughs) I do now, but we teased her about it. We were like, oh, that's funny, grandma. You're, you're so quirky, funny, depression-aged or era <laughs> grandma. But like, we couldn't have been more wrong.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I've done everything I could to ban plastics out of my life. And I've made it a conscientious decision to literally think about everything that I buy. Not everybody does that. And it's also hard. It's a lot of effort. So as you can say, it, it falls on producers. If there were more choices, it would be so easy for me to go zero waste. It'd be so easy for me. But we face plastic grocery bags, we face straws, we face bottles, we face to go food containers, uh, wrappers. I mean, it's it's just all over the place. And there's pushback. And you're right, there is a fine gray area. I think we need a committee to just sit down and be like, listen, lawmakers, this is what single use is. But medical technology, you know, sterile, important vaccinations, we need that. (laughs) But, But we don't need grocery bags. We don't need Ziploc bags, right? We don't need straws. It's there's the things of need and want. It's totally different. look up the definition. It's it's totally different. (laughs) It's totally different. But like I said, shout out to Canada. Absolutely. Shout out to a lot of countries out there. I mean, there's over 170 countries worldwide that have jumped on the bandwagon of cutting single use plastics by 2030. So I'm very pumped about the future.
1: I'm really optimistic about it too. It's absurd how many things get thrown away that shouldn't have been created in the first place.
0: Yeah, I, I say this, I swear, in every episode. I mean, science is just learned failures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Science has learned failures. I mean, how else are we going to write the ship without failing first? But yeah, I mean, with time and effort, I do believe that the US and other countries that still aren't totally on that bandwagon, they're going to cut these single-use plastics. And just imagine... A world where 90% of the plastics produced disappear from our our shores and waterways, our forests, and even inside of us, inside of all living organisms. I mean, 90% is throwaway plastics. And that goes all the way back to whenever it first started. And then the 10% that's also been thrown away, that's your fishing gear. Just imagine if we changed that.
1: And it's not really that hard, to be honest. Like, in terms of, like, big systemic problems in the world it's really one of the easier ones to fix, I believe, because there are viable solutions for all of the single-use plastics. There are good ones. They just cost a little bit more. I agree. And it's not even, I mean- For
0: now, for now, until we appropriately price it. Yeah. So whether or not there is a major movement to clean up and implement producer and governmental change, uh, there are still- Underlying effects from our man made friend plastics. And stick around for our second segment where we will take a deep dive into the effects that plastics have on our ecosystem. So thanks, Greg. I appreciate you being on.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I, it was fun. I like this. I can talk about this all day.
0: Oh, absolutely. I'll definitely have to have you back on again. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Greg. For all of you watching and listening, stay tuned. Like what you hear? Do us a favor at Woke Talk Podcast by giving us a follow review and share our content on social media book talk podcast is conveniently on twitter instagram reddit and facebook you can stream our animated audio content through our youtube channel or you can listen to our episodes that we feature on platforms such as anchor spotify apple podcasts google podcasts amazon podcasts and breaker if you the listener have any content suggestions or want to be a guest on the show Reach out to Woke Talk Podcast via social media, our contact us page on our website, www.woketalkpodcast.com, or email us at woketalkpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and thank you all for listening. I am your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay woke. Welcome to another segment of Woke Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. To kick things off, this segment will be focusing on the impacts that plastics have on our total ecosystem. For your information, an ecosystem includes all organisms and the physical environment. So instead of tackling this myself, we thought it would be best to bring in an expert. And with that being said, we were lucky enough to have connected with Dr. Jeremy Conkle. Jeremy is an associate professor in the Department of Physical and Environmental Sciences at Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi. I mentioned his work and scholar achievements in the introduction portion, but to put his relevance into perspective, he is well-equipped for this portion of the show. So thank you, Jeremy, for being on the podcast. And also thank you so much for inviting me to sit in on the Southern California Coastal Water Research Project Authority Report out. That's a very large acronym. But (laughs) for those of you wondering, that was on human and ecological health effects of microplastics and water. So thanks, Jeremy.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. You're welcome.
0: So how might our listeners reach you on social media? Uh,
2: So I'm on Twitter and my handle is C underscore H-A-W-Q. If you're trying to figure out what that means, it's Seahawk as in Coastal Health and Water Quality Lab. So it's just that acronym for that. So it's C
0: underscore H-A-W-Q. All right. Well, thank you. So now let's lay the foundation, so to speak. When we think of effects on the ecosystem, what does that all imply?
2: It really... Is a broad uh, way of thinking about things. Um, You can think about effects that may alter the way a system functions or change the way something is occurring in a system. That can be for the negative or the positive. And then you have different layers of that and the scale at which you think about those effects, whether it's you know a small system within the larger ecosystem or organismal, thinking about the population of that species or individual organisms or individuals within a population and their effects. So there's a lot of different layers to that when you think about an ecosystem. But yeah, those effects can be either both negative or positive.
0: Right. And then with respect to the plastics themselves, could you maybe elaborate on how those effects come hand in hand? I know we talked about different densities and different types of substances that we get off of those plastics.
2: Yeah. Plastics are not one singular item. They are comprised of many different polymers, Uh, And most of the people out there listening to this will probably understand that there's polyethylene, polypropylene are probably two of the most common. Polypropylene is used in in a lot of plastic bottles. Polyethylene is what you find in a lot of other single-use packaging, so wrapping for sealing items or in plastic bags. Those are two of the probably the most common plastics that you'll find, and they are less dense than water, so they tend to float under most circumstances. And so those are the ones you typically find washed up on beaches shorelines around you know of rivers and they tend to be more common in the environment and easy to see there's a lot of other plastics like nylon polyethylene terephthalate which is also polyester and polystyrene that are more dense than water and i know i say polystyrene there and a lot of you think about the foam cups that's when it's aerated so there's polystyrene comes in multiple forms. The most common that you probably see is in, or that you recognize is is in those foam cups that you get at fast food establishments or uh, those coolers you buy at the gas station. So that's one form. And and obviously that's less dense when it's aerated, but when it's not aerated, when it's in its typical form, it is more dense than water. And one of the most common uses for that polystyrene previously, and I, I don't think it's used for this anymore, but was the lids on Starbucks coffee cups. So a lot of coffee cup lids not just Starbucks, but others were polystyrene. And they may still be, I don't know if that's changed, but I know Starbucks changed their lids to their coffee cups or some of their cups anyway. So those plastics that are more dense than water tend to be found in different places, right? Because water is the transport mechanism. Once it gets in the environment, water will distribute these materials based on density. So if they don't float, they tend to sink and they get transported in the sediment. Or if the water flow is significant enough, it will entrain some of those materials in the flow of the water and move them around the environment. So typically you find the more dense plastics outside of places that you normally look. So you don't often get to see the sediment or the bottom of a river, but that's where you would probably find more of those heavier plastics if they're there.
0: Oh, okay. So let's now talk a little bit about the, I guess, the petrochemical aspect of what comes with these plastics whenever it's introduced into our ecosystem.
2: Yeah. So plastics are this material we use for a lot of things and those plastics come in different shapes, different sizes, and and are used for many, many different purposes. And the list of uses is, is constantly expanding. And in order to get some of these plastics to better mesh or increase their usefulness, you have to add chemicals to them. Now, these chemicals aren't a part of the structure of that plastic, but they enhance the use by making it less susceptible to weathering or aging, bending and breaking or fracturing and cracking. And so these chemicals are added and they kind of loosely sit within the chemical structure of the plastic and add functionality to it to increase the usefulness of those plastics. So these are things like phthalates, which are plasticizers or DHPs, but also you have UV inhibitors, things that reduce the effect of UV light. You also get flame retardants that will reduce or prevent things from catching fire as fast. So the flame retardants tend to be more in electronics, TVs, cell phones, things like that. Um, not that you're exposed to them heavily when they're on your TV or anything like that, but with the phthalates, those were in plasticizers were there to soften the plastic, make it more malleable, less likely to bend and break and crack. And so it increases the useful life of that plastic, which to some extent is good because you don't consume as much plastic that way if it lasts longer. You typically don't find a lot of those chemicals in uh, like the grocery bags you get at like Walmart or Target or grocery stores. Those plastic bags typically don't have the plasticizers in them because they're single use. They're not intended for long-term use and it's not worth it to put those chemicals into those. So they're typically just the polyethylene in a sheet form that's converted to a bag. And then that's the chemical suite that's on them when they're manufactured, if there's chemicals added. And then once these things get in the environment, plastics change, they weather, they age, you get a whole another potential suite of contaminants that could be on them from environmental exposure. So whatever chemicals, whether they're organic chemicals or metals in the environment, some of them can absorb to the plastics. And like I said, there's different types of plastics and their age and weathering in the environment also affects The surface of those plastics. So there's a lot of factors that go into affecting what chemicals will absorb to that. The type of plastic, its age, its weathering state, and just surface area in general. And then the chemicals that are in the environment that could stick to the plastics are also influenced or or dictate what will go on there, right? So the chemical properties are important. And so you have this complex series of, of properties that you have to consider when studying these chemicals or
0: considering their potential effects in the environment. (laughs) <laughs> it's more intuitive than what most people would think. Definitely. They just think plastics. Well, plastics is in the ocean, so it's bad and we're consuming them. But you know, nobody thinks about, I guess, dynamic uh, situation that we're looking at. And it makes me nervous how much we still don't know about the substances that plastics emit into our ecosystem. And thankfully, we have top researchers like yourself focusing on it. So let's kind of switch gears and talk about the physical environment and how plastics have altered our land, our air, our sea. So let's start with land, shall we? Yeah, I think a
2: good way to think about this is humans live most places around the globe now, but there are still places where there are uninhabited areas where humans typically don't go very often. And for the most part, if we do go there and look for plastics, we can find them. If you have the right tools, know what to look for, and are diligent enough, you can probably find plastic almost anywhere you look. It's just a matter of having the right tools. And you know, obviously advanced microscopes and things like that are not always available. And you know, people don't want to go out and buy them just to, to try to find something in an area they think is clean. But you can find plastic almost everywhere. And we see studies coming out all the time about, you know, we were on this mountain and this is how much plastic we found. And it's, you know, like rarely anybody goes there. But it's key to think about what plastic is getting those environments. It's not like somebody dumped a, a, a garbage truck of plastic in that area. We're talking about plastics that get transported in the atmosphere for those pristine areas or in water from upstream system to a downstream system. So those plastics are typically somehow airborne. They're light enough to get entrained in the flow of the air and they move around the earth that way. And so these are typically really small, 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 maybe nanoplastics in particle size, but oftentimes we think more about this plastic in the atmosphere as the fibers from our clothes and other materials that we use in our daily lives. So the clothes we're wearing, the, you know, flags, other fabrics that are out there in the environment, sails on ships, those are all constantly shedding some small amount of fibers. When you walk around, you're shedding fibers. Those potentially, some of them can get entrained in the air and blow around, uh, get caught up in the air and move long distances. The data and the, the studies on this are not nearly as substantial as what we have in coastal and marine and deep ocean environments. That's where a lot of the focus on plastics research has been, but it's the researchers in atmospheric sciences and you know studying soil science and agriculture are really getting into this now and starting to dig into it and you're starting to see more of those studies come out. But we definitely see plastic almost anywhere you look, especially if you go to like parks, like uh, places with shorelines or, or wherever water can flow, you see that accumulation both from the water and then in parks you definitely see people littering or stuff gets enmeshed in the soil and it kind of gets buried. And you don't see it. It's kind of below the grass a little bit and you can see it maybe sticking out of the soil. But We have a park here, Cole Park, that is notorious for plastic debris washing up because there's a couple big stormwater drains nearby, but also people in Texas in our area tend to litter a lot. And there's a lot of wind here as well. So the trash cans kind of blow out and you get stuff all over the ground. So you can see a lot in this park, almost like the picture behind you.
0: Right. One good example is Easter Island, one that has a low population density, but a high density or high concentration of, of, I guess, just accumulated plastics. You can look up pictures online for anybody who's watching or listening. So for my own research, there's about 8.3 billion metric tons of plastics that have been produced since 1950 and 79% or roughly six and a half billion metric tons have been either landfill dumped or have found its way into the natural environment. So with regards to like these chemicals that you kind of touched upon earlier, don't you find this to be troubling in terms of the soil profiles with high concentrations because essentially, that is like a gateway to leaching into groundwater and also becoming absorbed by our, I guess, all kingdoms really put together. I mean, we essentially have landfills to prevent such leaching, but that's only just a small percentage that's collective of the 79%.
2: Yeah, it comes down to concentration and and mass of the plastic, right? And how much of the chemicals are in there. So For I think a lot of consumer plastics that are single use, which is what we see a lot of in the environment, they don't necessarily have a lot of the phthalates in them or the UV inhibitors because they're intended for a short use. So it's not worth it to put that extra chemical in it. And a lot of those single use plastics also don't have or um, are food grade plastics. So they're used for soda or water or other food items. And so those typically don't have a lot of the plasticizer. Some of the fast food packaging or microwavable dinners, meals—they have the perfluorinated compounds in them, which can be problematic. And I think they'll hopefully be on their way out in the next few years because we've learned so much about the perfluorinated compounds in the last decade. But um, you know, I, I don't worry about that leaching as much. It's more about the physical effect on land. I think you know, what does this do to the soil structure? What does it do to, um, you know, potential organisms that are there in the soil? You know, if there is some metal contamination or or other organic contamination, could that be affecting some of that ecosystem as well? And could the plastics add additional stress to that? So there's a lot of variables there. I don't worry too much with some of the plastics as far as those additives that are in them. It's more about physical effects on land, I think. But, you know, there's still a lot to learn. So I could be wrong with that.
0: Yeah, well, those are great points. And so let's kind of go, I guess, to the waterways, because I know you can unpack a lot of information based on this realm of plastic effects. So please uh, enlighten us.
2: In water is where most research has been done, especially in kind of coastal and marine systems. Freshwater systems are starting to receive a lot more attention. And there's some great researchers at University of Loyola in Chicago that are, are just got a grant to do some work looking at how plastic debris moves throughout a watershed and what things kind of capture and trap it and cause it to be kind of sequestered there versus what conditions allow it to flow freely downstream. And so that's one of the big questions is how is this material getting from upstream to downstream environments and how much is being sequestered? Because we can measure what is in a system in the water and then what comes out, but you're missing a lot on the shorelines. And I think that's a really important aspect because you can have sampling under normal conditions and you, you measure a certain amount, but then you might get these flush events that take that stuff that is accumulated on the shoreline and really flush it out of that stream or that river in one large event. And that's where you can get these really terrible visuals of all this trash going downstream. And that includes the smaller microplastics as well. And so we know that within those systems that a lot of this plastic debris is accumulating on the shorelines. What I don't think we know as much about is how that's affecting sedimentation and soil structure on those shores. Does it make the shorelines less stable? And I I think you could probably maybe make some arguments for that, especially with things like the nitex chip bags and you know when you get potato chips those bags are really hard to open and rip right and those bags are really resistant to degradation but they tend to end up in water bodies sometimes and that can affect soil structure but maybe they just have the same kind of structure as leaves or something but we just don't know those things and so it'll be interesting to see how plastic debris accumulating on shorelines affects the stability of those shorelines over time and as that stuff moves to the coast you know it goes out of river mouths and and streams and then accumulates on beaches and, and shorelines around the world. And with that, I haven't seen a whole lot of studies there looking at the potential for physical effects on the ecosystem. One of the only, or I think there's a couple of papers on this now that hypothesize that because plastics have different heat capacities, which is the ability to basically absorb heat, they heat up differently than the sediment on a beach. And that sediment on a beach may heat up More or less. I can't remember what it was, but I think that the sediment gets hotter. And in places like Texas, here, where we get a lot of debris from the Gulf of Mexico that washes up on our beaches. And we also have a lot of sea turtle nesting sites, especially for endangered species that have been really looked over for the last couple of decades to try to get them back up and recovered to a degree. And those turtles are struggling still, but they're starting to come back. We're starting to see more of them. But the question is, you know, if you have this plastic debris washing up on your beaches and it mixes with the sand and affects the heat storage capacity of the soil during the day, that could affect the sex of sea turtles because sea turtle eggs, the sex of sea turtles are typically or, but some species are determined by temperature. And so if those temperatures aren't at the right range, you might get all of one sex or the other. And so I haven't seen that actually identified in the wild, but I've seen studies that talk about that and have looked at plastic debris on beaches as a potential problem to affect those sea turtles in that way
0: oh wow that's something that you don't you don't hear of every day wow that's that's really good information right
2: and those those are some of the bigger species level but also ecosystem right they change some dynamic in the system and alter it in a way that could harm a species
0: that makes so much sense i didn't even think about the heat sink of having all these plastics within the environment wow
2: wow yeah. Some of my favorite studies are the ones where you're like, well, damn, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? So um, and that that's a great example, right? You know, plastics,
0: they don't heat up as much or they don't absorb as much heat as a, as a mineral grain of sand. Right. And I guess I'm sure you're probably pretty familiar with this. A lot of these uh, plastic producing companies are now understanding what's going on with the water that we need to use and consume, because a lot of these companies, They are petrochemicals, so they have to have clean potable water, uh, fresh water to make these plastics. So where are they moving to? They're moving to the Great Lakes. Yeah, they're moving to shipping routes where they can ship and receive materials
2: efficiently here, like up there. Yeah, I think near you, but also down here in Texas. um, We have two of the largest polyethylene plants in the world that are either just opening up or about to open up.
0: Yep. I see hiring signs actually all the time whenever I go up to my family camp up in Lake Erie. And they're all over the place. We're hiring, we're hiring. And I've been watching a lot of videos, even not even just Lake Erie, but also Lake Ontario, where they're just setting up all over the place. And they're a major drain on, on, I guess, society's effectiveness of being able to have clean potable water. So it's kind of scary. Watch the beach lines. I've seen actually a lot of microplastics build up within the last couple of years. Yeah. Once you start seeing them, you'll notice them
2: every time because it looks, it literally looks like colorful confetti in the the rack line on the beach. So that high tide line, you'll see it. And it's just, there's blues and greens and reds just mixed in. And, And once you see it, it's just everywhere.
0: It's unseeable. Yeah. So that is some very valuable information that you've been providing. And as it has been established, this is kind of a directly correlated trickle effect, just like what you were talking about with the turtles. And Plastics are emitted into the environment along with these attached industrial chemicals that translate from their said functions. And then the living organisms of the earth, which represent all kingdoms, come into contact with these macro and micro plastics, predominantly these microplastics. and they ingest them one way or another. So let's kind of talk about some of the effects on living organisms, uh, if you may.
2: Yeah. So like we started off talking about plastics are really diverse. And the workshop that you listened to a little bit this morning, talked about the struggles and trying to tease out what matters the most when it comes to exposures of these plastics. And I think listening to that, the biggest thing that I took away was that is something I always tell my students in my classes, like if you don't know the answer, probably the answer is it depends. (laughs) And there are so many variables that it's going to depend on Mm -hmm. the individual variables and details of that specific thing you're trying to measure or understand. So for example, in some of the research, it looked like size of the particles at low concentration. So larger particles at low concentrations had the greatest effect, but then also The opposite was true. A lot of small particles also had a really large effect. So it's not really clear yet when you see these effects. So it's going to come down to individual circumstances, organisms, environmental conditions, plastic type, plastic shape, whether it's um, a particle or a fragment or a sphere versus a fiber, all those things play into the effects you're going to see. And uh, it's so variable and it's really hard to pinpoint what's the best way to talk about it and not seem biased in one way. But a paper by uh, Chelsea Rockman's group up at at the University of Toronto, they updated a paper they put out six years ago now, almost six years ago now, they updated it last year where they basically did a meta-analysis of all the toxicology and effect studies that they could find that had reliable data. And to give you an example of some of the the categories of effects that they saw in that data was basically they had some of the categories that had the most effect at the sub-organismal level were macromolecule damage, like DNA damage, protein damage from exposure to microplastics. But the caveat is, th- th- like, so out of those studies, there are 36 effects that were found, but there are also 38 effects not found. So that's why it gets into the complexity of this is that there's a lot of material here and a lot of variables, and how you control those variables and under what conditions do you test will really help to tease out what effects you're going to see. And so there's a lot of studies that show some kind of effect, and then there's a lot of studies that found no effect. And there are a lot of studies that also are not necessarily comparable either because their methods don't mesh well or aren't comparable, or they weren't environmentally relevant concentrations they observed or used in their in their dosing. So there's a lot of differences there. Um, another example is here with organisms reduced growth or death. So they found there are 75 effects from microplastics, 59 effects from macroplastics, but then there are 96. Studies or effects that weren't found or weren't observed that they were testing for in microplastics. So it really does depend on the organism. But in general, the types of things that you see tend to be like inflammation, protein damage, cell damage, that kind of stuff from exposure. Inflammation, you know, if you eat something that's not what you should be eating, it can upset your stomach, right? So, same thing in smaller organisms. At the ecological level, so the larger level, the ecosystem level, the example here is there's increase or decrease of population. So there's 28 studies that showed an increase or decrease due to microplastics, 24 due to macroplastics, but then 44 found no effect. So it really is specific to organisms and their environment. And Mm -hmm. it's really difficult to kind of tease out those and talk about them in a broad scale at this point, because there's so much diversity in the materials and the testing. And that's one of the biggest struggles in this field right now is how do you compare across studies. And is it apples to apples or apples to oranges? That's a big s- struggle and a lot of figuring out how to synthesize studies, but harmonize methods so that they can compare across studies and environments. Sounds like it's just in the baby stages. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. And
0: <laughs> years of work, but still in baby stages.
2: The research is exploding. And there, you know, if you look on Web of Science and see how many articles use the term microplastics, it's exploding. And one of the examples during the workshop this morning was that since they stopped collecting data for this tox screening tool that they've created in April, there've been seven or eight more studies on mammals that have come out. So that level of growth is hard to keep up with. And as a researcher, it's like drinking water out of fire hose because uh-huh. every day you can open up and search for new studies and you just find all this stuff. The key is how do you know if that study was done right? And I think journal um, editors are getting better at teasing out and, and rejecting the studies that aren't as rigorous. And so some of the older studies that you might find in literature are not as reliable or, or would not be accepted today. So you have to also tease that out. But for the most part, anything coming out today should be more rigorous and, and have great standards that allow us to, to better compare across
0: studies. So earlier you talked about population effects, and I'm not sure, but are you familiar with Dr. Shauna Swan by chance?
2: Uh, I'm not.
0: So I caught an interview that featured her on actually Joe Rogan's podcast, and if anyone is interested, please look that up on YouTube because it's very interesting. But wow, she did multiple studies just based on phthalates that come from the petrochemical industry. And she and her colleagues have proven that this is a chemical found in all of our foods and drinks that affect our hormones and development. That's not, we're not even just talking about fish, we're talking about grains and, and everything that we can ingest. And it affects our hormones and development, specifically testosterone levels developing in, in young boys from their pregnant mothers. And it's also directly tied into our sperm counts and infertility. I have a question for you. Is this phthalates or perfluorinated compounds? This is phthalates. Yeah. But they, they, she did it specifically on phthalates. Okay. But then she said, she alluded that like, since we shown direct correlations, there are definitely other chemicals that are doing this, but we found direct correlation that this is affecting infertility and our hormones. So she proved that a lower AGD or an anogenital distance or informally taint length directly correlates with these chemicals found in the environment, such as these phthalates. So Dr. Swan actually found this back in 2005, and then she also redid her research to make sure that she backed up her credibility, and she found it again in 2008. So what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I don't know much about phthalates, but what you're describing there also is similar to what's known about perfluorinated compounds, which are these compounds that are used in a lot of things. They're basically surfactants. And so on fast food wrappers, You know, when you peel the cheese off of a hamburger wrapper, it just comes right off. That's because it's lined with a little bit of plastic, I believe, but also this chemical, these perfluorinated compounds, stain master carpets, which were probably still around today, but you know, back in the 80s and 90s, you could find the, that label and that was like what you wanted because your carpet wouldn't stain. Well, that's a chemical in the perfluorinated compound family. And those are sit very similar to what you're saying with their sperm counts and, and they're everywhere. In fact, there's a great documentary called The Devil We Don't Know. Uh, and I think it's available free on YouTube, or at least it was, about perforinate compounds in West Virginia that kind of have the same effect. After World War II is when these compounds really took off, and 3M and DuPont made them, and others do now, I think. But um, some lawsuits started to pop up, and so those companies started doing research, and they couldn't find anybody in the U.S. that did not have it in their bloodstream. And so they had to go back to blood samples that the military took before World War II to do comparisons, because those blood samples before World War II did not have the perfluorinated compounds in their blood. And phthalates, it's what you're saying sounds similar. I don't know if it's exactly the same, but you know these perfluorinated compounds are in firefighting foams and they're in groundwater under a lot of military bases. There's going to be tens to hundreds of billions of dollars worth of remediation for these perfluorinated compounds in the future and similar amounts of lawsuits. Right. Wow. <laughs> That's scary. That really is scary that's another podcast for you. The PFAS compounds.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I actually know somebody that studies that. I'm going to do a spinoff episode on that. I'm very interested. Wow. (laughs) So, Hey, I hate to cut it short, Jeremy. And I know you said you had to get out of here for another meeting, but this was such a pleasure having you on. Hopefully we can have you on again in the future and we appreciate your time here. So thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. You're welcome. All right, when we return for the final segment, Meza Abari and I will be discussing ways in which we, the consumers, can mitigate our daily consumption of plastics without hurting our pocketbooks. So stay tuned. Woke Talk Podcast would like to promote elite graphics for their screen printing, embroidery, decals, graphic design, and much more. They also showcase their own clothing line on their website and currently provide free shipping for purchases over $50. Now I've personally had them print custom t-shirts for me in the past, and I was more than pleased with the results and customer service. So with that being said, Woke Talk Podcast will utilize Elite Graphics in the future to make all of our merchandise. So if you are interested in getting some custom clothing, decals, or signs made, check out Elite Graphics at www.elitegraphics.org, and you can also find them on social media such as Facebook and Instagram where you can see their past products, merchandise drops, and promotions. So contact Elite Graphics today, and don't just settle on being average, be elite. Welcome back to the final segment of Woke Talk podcast. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. I have with me Meza Albari, electrical engineering student studying sustainable power systems at Western Sydney University in Australia. So as mentioned before, she is an active advocate of climate change, along with appropriate action towards a sustainable future. So welcome to the podcast, Mesa.
3: Thanks, Sam. Thanks for getting me here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in this final segment, we plan to cover ways in which we, the consumers, can mitigate our plastic consumption to save our planet and prevent long-term health effects on all living things. So Meza, what are some ways in which we can decrease our daily consumption of plastics in a practical manner without kind of affecting our pocketbooks?
3: I think it it's different from person to another depends on your daily routine. So I'll share the way I started this, like reducing the single use plastic in my life. So first thing I just wrote down my daily routine and figured out which part of it have a single use plastic. For example, I wake up in the morning and I go have my coffee at uni and the coffee cups actually is not recyclable at all. So I replaced this with an eco-friendly cup and yeah, that was the first thing I started with. Also my uh, water bottle. I replaced it cause I take my water bottle to uni. So I replaced blesser with a, a reusable water bottle. And this way I started just like looking at my daily routine and replacing everything that is single use with uh, something that is reusable.
0: It's amazing how much in our daily routine is actually plastic. And, and if you don't sit down and make that list, you don't realize it. It's, it's in our bathrooms. It's in our kitchens. It's in our bedrooms. It's, yeah. it's everywhere. It's our cars, whatever we got going on. There's some sort of plastics involved. And I like the list idea. I think I should do that, honestly. I mean, I've, I've done a really good job in terms of trying to go zero waste, but that's a perfect idea. So thanks.
3: Yeah. And look, I'll just give an advice. Just don't go hard on yourself. For example, I have a fossil fuel guy still because I can't afford the EV car. So mm-hmm. I still use it. So don't say if I can't do everything that I'm not doing anything, just start simple and then go like, and you can develop uh, day by day.
0: Very true. Right. We don't need a hundred people doing zero waste. We need millions of people doing it, you know, imperfectly. We need people trying. It's not, we don't expect people to go zero waste tomorrow. There's just no way. Like what we talked about in segment one, it's a producer and governmental issue. Yeah, I mean, we have a little bit of fault, but by no means anywhere near producers and governments that, that implement education. So yeah, uh, do you mind walking me through how, because I know we talked about offset, how the recycling system set up, maybe we can kind of help people understand how to recycle better.
3: Yeah, sure. I can talk about this. So, when I used to, used to be a single uh, used plastic person, I used to think every time I see the triangular simple, which is the green one, I used to think, oh, it's, it's recyclable. So, it's good. And then when I actually did my research, it's not like not every time we see this on a product, that means the product is recyclable. It's only number one and two. When we see number one and two inside it, it's easy to be recyclable. Other than that, it's, it needs like specific programs to be recyclable, which is crazy. I would just give a, like a very small hints about the numbers. For example, number one, we can find it in soda, water, our juice bottles, and sometimes in food packaging, and we can recognize it, that it doesn't have a color. And this is the most recyclable one. Number two, which is HDPE. It's um, most found in milk jugs and household carpet, cleaners, detergent uh, containers. And some plastic bags and this one is also recyclable in australia actually there's a program called red cycle is recycling this kind of uh, plastic from number three four and five it becomes harder to be recyclable it's recyclable still and a lot of programs they do recycle it but it becomes harder and harder reaching to number six which contains the coffee cups and i think everyone around the world consumes coffee daily And it's not recyclable at all. It's the hardest to be recyclable with other egg cartons. And number seven is the last one, which is the mixed plastic. And recycling programs, I wouldn't say 100%, but most of them, they don't prefer to recycle the mixed plastic.
0: Yeah, that's extremely difficult. And even some of the food packaging. Aren't even virgin plastics like what you were talking about in uh, number one and two. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a higher percentage for sure where they have a concentration of highest being HDPE or polypropylene or what have you. But it's pretty tough. It's with 9% globally in which we actually recycle these materials. But just kind of jumping back into some of these numbers, like with ones and twos, like water bottles, plastic grocery bags, and then getting into the HDPE with a detergent and and milk bottles and stuff like that. All of that stuff, you can actually get away from those. Like you can find different alternatives in stores, pretty much any store now, like in terms of just trying to get away from milk jugs, uh, you can go anywhere locally and find something in a carton were in a glass jar. Like I actually, whenever I was drinking milk before I turned pescatarian, I was going to a local coffee shop that actually got fresh milk in glass jars from a local farm. It was really awesome. So I was doing it that way to mitigate waste. Now, in terms of the plastic bottles, I don't recommend anybody drinking out of bottles, out of plastic bottles. But what you can do is bring your own bottle. Go to any store. They're literally on every shelf. There's thousands of them on any shelf. And there's a lot of different alternatives. And in terms of coffee cups, I know just from the American perspective that- Americans drink up to 20 coffee cups per week. And that actually is- equating to over a thousand cups in a year. And that's the average, obviously, you know, we have 383 million people, but not everybody drinks coffee, but that's a big number. And actually I was kind of surprised that America is only 11th in consumption per capita. Yeah, I was really, really surprised by that. But for the percentage that do drink coffee in the U S that accrues to about 140 billion to go cups per year. I can't tell you what that is volumetrically, but it's massive. But the cool thing is if we're talking money, which I mean, money kind of governs most decisions unless it's ethics, but, you know, making your own, actually I make my own coffee and it's estimated that you save an average around $400 of savings per year, which is actually, it's pretty good. Put $400 back in your pocket. That's a nice plane ticket to anywhere in the U.S. and sometimes globally. Here, Here's the problem. You know, cups are really wasteful. With every cup, There comes a lid, there comes a creamer cup, there comes a plastic straw and other things behind the counter that we don't even realize. The milk containers, whatever it may be that put in your coffee. And I do have a thing for coffee and I love to support small businesses. So here's kind of my pitch for a happy middle ground. Unlike Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, like these chain coffee shops, the smaller coffee establishments, they will listen to your suggestions. I've talked to many different ones in the local Pittsburgh area. And they've been very transparent in what they're trying to do. A lot of them are trying to to be sustainable and just giving them some ideas. So like non-plastic alternatives, you can do cardboard cups. You can sit down with a mug, which is great. I mean, what does it take to drink a cup of coffee? 15 minutes maybe out of a day. That's nothing. Yeah. And then I've also mentioned edible cups to a lot of companies Edible cups can be made from like different oats and grains compressed. And they actually have a pretty decent thermal capabilities in which they can, I think I saw anywhere up to like eight hours in which they can hold heat. Plus it's edible, which is awesome. And then also just bring in your own cup. I mean, that's the number one. So yeah, that's your pro tip for coffee lovers. <laughs> what else can you think of that way? I don't steal the thunder.
3: I think it's all about consistency. If I buy a coffee cup today that is eco-friendly and If I'm lazy to take it every day with me or if I say, okay, today I'll buy a coffee cup, it's not going to affect much. It's all about consistency. It's all about caring about the planet, like caring and knowing what's happening if you actually get this coffee cup. It's going to be emitting carbon and it's going to be ruining the planet soon. So I would say it's all about knowing. First of all, know why you don't want to get this coffee cup because some people just like don't know why once you know why and once you know how much these coffee cups are affecting and emitting carbon to the environment you would actually stop it like it's affecting your future and if you have a family it's affecting your family and your loved ones so it's all about caring knowing and consistency
0: cheers cheers <laughs> Yeah, being coffee. <laughs> and I also kind of want to throw out a couple more ideas in which we can mitigate that I was kind of thinking of. And we kind of talked about consumer products, you know, in terms of just like you know, drinking milk and coffee and, and water. But I mean, there's a lot more. Even in the bathroom, your toiletries, right? Definitely, you know, from your hand soaps to what you use in the shower in terms of shampoos, conditioners, bar soaps. Uh, is the way to go. I've switched over to cold form soaps. There's a lot of companies out there that are making organically made cold form soaps. A lot of small businesses too. I mean, if you go to like local farmers markets and stuff like that, they're there, which is really cool. And honestly, if you sit down and do the math in terms of usage compared to what you get in a bottle, it's quite similar. I mean, the just in segment 1 whenever I was talking to Greg Daly, he is the owner of of Bar and Bar is a cold form soap company. And it's astonishing. We talked even on set that like the comparison of what you buy and what you get from each product is not even close. Like when you buy a shampoo from a bottle, you're buying 80% water, 20% soap. Whereas if you buy, yeah, it's it's actually just a scam. It, it really is a scam. I, I encourage everybody to try to get cold form soaps because you get way more out of the bar itself. Yeah. Even in deodorants and stuff. I wear Old Spice and Old Spice actually has cardboard contained, it's like a push pop kind of for deodorant. There's ways in which we can get around these things. Yeah, Even with detergents, you mentioned detergents, you can buy Tide in a thousand (laughs) different plastic or probably HDPE containers, but they also have a sustainable product in which you can buy it in a box, which is really neat. And it's powder in a box. And I use that they're huge. I mean, it's it's lasted me for maybe at least four months. There's so many different alternatives out there. I mean, you just kind of have to get informed, like what we're doing right now, get informed about it, and then just make it a daily routine. I mean, it doesn't take much. Just like how you're using plastic today, it becomes an unconscious act every other day.
3: True. And it takes like 21 days to take a habit. If you repeat something for 21 days, it will become part of your routine. That's a fact that I learned. Oh, yeah. And also like just mentioning about shampoo and like soaps, there's always a green replacement, always, in okay. everything. And Bill Gates in his in his uh, book about climate change, he mentioned about green premiums. Even if it's a little bit costly or a little bit more expensive than the normal product, it's called a green premium because you're saving a planet at the end of the day.
0: Right. And just like how I brought up, and I've, Just wanted to make it known that a lot of these products, if you actually sit down and think about the worth between what the product is, if it's a green product, and then these petrol products that you use, technically, once we start, like we even talked about this in segment one, and I'll repeat it. If you sit down and do the actual math between both, the petrol products usually use way more water and has more carbon put into it right yeah so if we introduce a carbon tax and start actually valuing water the difference in price is going to be not even close like in terms of the green solution so just getting into the habit now is going to save you a boatload of money in the future mark my words i know it's coming we have droughts popping up all over the world right now in terms of natural fresh water so, so definitely start start getting into your habits now. I mean, 21 days isn't much in the grand scheme of life. It really isn't. A, a minute decision is nothing in the grand scheme of life. <laughs> so thanks, Mesa, for that insight. I'm sure the listeners will benefit from the tips and tricks uh, to reduce their plastic intakes and then also kind of understand what's going on with our recycling system. So now I'll leave you with one final piece of info before we get out of here, which is actually really exciting. And so scientists all around the world are working diligently to find an answer to the plastic products that are already produced. And from my own research, they have found organisms that actually break down plastic. So you have wax worms and mealworms. And on a microbial level, Ideonella saciensis have all shown promise as plastic consuming organisms, which is really exciting. This doesn't excuse us from producing less amounts of plastics, but in turn, it gives us a solution to what we are already facing. So remember, taking action is going to help the environment we live in, our own health, and then the health of other living organisms. And that will continue to give us opportunity to thrive on this beautiful planet that we call home so thanks again Mesa. it was a pleasure i really like talking to you i hope that we can do something else in the future
3: thank you sam thanks for inviting me and letting me be part of your podcast it was amazing thanks
0: that is all for this episode of woke talk podcast Now I'd like to give a big shout out to my guest stars for sharing their wealth of knowledge and vast expertise. I would also love to mention my amazing team here at Woke Talk Podcast, starting with Cody Brandt, our senior editor, David Beam, for being my co-producer and graphic designer. You can find him on Instagram at DavidBeam37 or at David Beam on Twitter. And last, but definitely not least, Panyapit Ericsson, our social media coordinator. You can find him on Instagram at Panyapit underscore you. To wrap up we hope that you take away important information in regards to how plastics affect the world we live in and what we can do to mitigate the plastics we consume without digging deeper into our pockets to find out more information please visit the ecology center at ecologycenter.org the ecology center is celebrating their 51st anniversary this year and is known as one of the first action oriented environmental organizations in the united states The Ecology Center was founded on the ideology of establishing environmental problems and demonstrating sound alternatives. Their website contains fact sheets, brochures, and a help desk that can support your questions and curiosities on climate, the environment, sustainability, and much more. So say if you wanted to learn more about how you can cut single-use plastics, they can help with that. They have a plastic free blog on their website called Zero Waste News, just for you to get involved with or even just read up on. So check out their website at EcologyCenter.org for this important information or find them on Facebook at EcologyCenter.org, Twitter at Ecology Center, or Instagram at Ecology.Center. Book Talk Podcast would like to encourage you to invoke change in our society and make it an effort to make this world a more sustainable place. We need leaders to protect our ecosystems for the survival of future generations. So just remember, change does start with you. So thank you all for listening to Woke Talk Podcast. I am your host, Sam Stanford. And as always, stay woke. Woke Talk Podcast would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertisement background rhythm.